0: In the Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. Most ships kept a human-looking avatar for social calls. People feel more comfortable when they can see their gods incarnate. But the Lesser Zadkiel was not most ships, and the form they chose was of sizzling light radiated through dark clouds, only faintly suggesting a human form. It was the third day of my voyage, and having wandered the ship's limited maze of corridors and hallways a dozen times already, pining for an unrequited adolescent love, I was listless. There weren't any games on board, and the crew were all old eccentrics and silent friars. For the first time in my short, privileged life, I was left completely to my own devices, and I hated it. By the time I passed the upper hall for the third time that day and came across the ship's avatar practicing Tai Chi. I was almost out of my head. I leaned into the room to watch them practice. There was literally nothing else to do. The avatar was framed against the wide arched gothic windows. Beyond them, the starry void stretched on forever. Bored? The ship asked. They knew I was there without turning to look. I was just wondering. I said, How long is this trip going to last? The lesser Zadkiel laughed. The sound was like lightning sizzling over distant hills. Children of Utopia, always distracted. Always expecting fresh entertainments. Oh, well, I'm sorry. You've come to the wrong place for that. The trip will take however long it takes. They punctuated their point with a White Crane Spreads Wings. I had the sense I was being dismissed, but I wasn't so easily gotten rid of. The windowsills of the upper hall were wide enough to read on, so I jumped up and sat with my legs swinging and the cold vastness of interstellar space at my back. Sleepnir, I said. It was the name of the ghost ship we were out there trying to find. Sleepnir, I'm not sure I like it. "'Your instincts serve you well,' said the ship, tolerating my continued presence. "'It is an evil name. "'Sleepnir was the eight-legged horse of Odin, but Odin was a death god. "'A death god with an eight-legged horse. "'Do you see the joke?' "'I shrugged. "'Joke?' "'No, not really. "'When do you ride a beast with eight legs? "'When four men bear your casket to the grave.' It's the sort of grisly riddle that the Vikings liked, but I suppose the builders of Sleipnir didn't know that. I shivered. The void was chill behind me. Many ships picked up little eccentricities, little hobbies. So would you, if you were immortal. At that moment, several kids from the graduating class of my high school were on board the party cruiser Champagne for My Real Friends.' The champagne's avatar was an actual functioning meat body that could get drunk. It looked like a husky guy with curly golden hair and never wore a shirt. The lesser Zadkiel's hobby was a little less fun. It was an archaeologist. Or an undertaker. I'd chosen the wrong way to spend my summer. So, how do you find a ship? I asked. Out in all that endless space. I could feel the infinity of it on the window's other side, like a pressure, not a vacuum, against the glass. "'I haven't yet,' said the ship. "'Did the Zatkiel fear space? "'Does a fish fear the hugeness of the sea?' "'I don't even know for sure that there was a ship called Sleepnear. "'What?' "'That threw me. "'You might be able to tell, but I was already regretting leaving my life behind.' I was feeling like I'd been shanghaied, even though I'd practically begged for an escape from my imaginary problems. The thought that it might all turn out to be a wild goose chase made me want to claw at the walls. Then what are we doing here? The ship laughed again. They didn't have a great sense of humor, but they sure found me funny. (laughs) I've a little faith, they said. We're taking a shot in the dark, but I think it's a good one. There's a little girl's diary that I found dating back to the second crisis. It mentions that the girl's mother was put on a ship called Slipner. Slipner. It might not seem like much to go on, but the girl who wrote that diary was on board a ship called Grani, and we know a ship called Gulfaxi was also lost around that time. Since Grani and Gulfaxi are both divine horses from Norse mythology, I decided it makes sense to read Slipner as Sleepnir. Given Sleipnir's importance, it would have been the biggest of the three, maybe up to twenty thousand souls. Mm, That might seem small by the standards of today, but it would have made Sleipnir one of the biggest ships of its age. Well, to be honest, that all kind of seems a bit like a leap, I said. But even if the ship did exist, how do you find it out there? It's like a needle in a haystack. The tip of a needle in a trillion haystacks, Zadkiel said. But if Sleipnir was as big as I think, only a few dozen facilities could have launched it. Given the destinations of Grani and Golfaxi, I came up with a short list of six likely destinations, twenty-one unlikely ones, and three hundred and fourteen distant possibilities. Then, all that was left was to back-calculate trajectories of the relevant stars and worlds over a few dozen centuries to a roughly ten-year window during the Second Crisis. Piece of cake, I said. Impossibly difficult. "'said the Zadkiel. "'So what did you do?' "'The ship took a moment before giving me an answer, "'focusing instead on the execution of carry Tyre to the mountain. "'Finally,' they said, "'I followed my gut.' "'You guessed?' "'No, no. I relied on intuition. "'Isn't that more of a human thing?' "'They laughed and didn't dignify my ignorance with an explanation.' So you did find it? No. What I did find was a 200-year-old shipping manifest that mentioned a debris field in the general volume of one of the possible trajectories. Assuming the debris came from an internal explosion that knocked Sleepnir off course, I was able to plot a cone of possible new routes. Right now, we're headed for the expanding edge of that cone. I considered the math involved and found it dizzying. How big's the circle? sizeable, the ship admitted. We're not going to find anything, are we? I'd make you a bet, the ship said, but gambling is against my religion. They returned slowly to Wuji, the beginning stance, the position of pregnant emptiness. Three weeks later, I woke at 3am, ship time, to find the avatar looming down at me, their eyes like terrible stars in endless dark. "'How do you like the taste of crow?' it said. W- "'What?' "'I have found sleep "'Who would you like to see?' A few minutes later, groggy but dressed, I found my way to the upper hall, where the avatar was gazing out at a set of monumental ruins which were drifting in the dark. The ghost ship was more huge than I could have thought— Though I had flown on ships the size of continents and more, these things were built by other ships and attained the scale of nature. But it was almost impossible to imagine mortal hands had made something as cyclopean as the sleepnir. Its immense prow was shield-like, as if someone had sawn off the corner of a moon, and behind it, the body of the ship was a city folded inward on itself into a steel drum a kilometer across. Against this dark vastness. The Lesser's acule was like a hagfish at a whale's sunken corpse, a damselfly against a temple wall. How did you find it? I asked. I was awed by the scale of the thing. The excitement was like sparkling water in my chest. I can't tell you, said the ship. You mean my little human brain couldn't understand. I mean my big machine brain can't understand. So many guesses had to be right in order for me to find her here. Statistically, it shouldn't have happened. I might almost say. The ship hesitated. What? That the sleep near wanted to be found. I thought of that cold and monstrous hulk waiting out there, silent in the dark. Please don't say that, I said. Why not? Said the lesser Zadkiel. Wouldn't you want to be? After only a few moments, the Zadkiel's drones began to stream across the sleep-near-sleeping skin, like fireflies in a summer night. A sudden envy seized me. After so long trammelled on the ship, I longed to be free, to fly the night and explore as they did. Zadkiel, I said, can I go with them? The Avatar turned to stare at me for a long moment its mind opaque behind those glowing eyes. It may not be the best idea. The sleepner could be dangerous. No, I have the power to keep you safe. But it is a ghost ship. Are you prepared for what you'll find? Because I was naive, I said, I'm not scared of ghosts. The Zadkiel dipped its head. Then I have no right to stop you. A short time later, I was sheathed in black and sentient fiber, warm, well-nigh indestructible, and thinner than a single human hair, so it felt like being naked in the void. The suit breathed a slight pressure behind me, so that I could move through vacuum as though swimming. I swam with a slow breaststroke in between the stars. Around me, the stream of drones had finished its catalogue of the sleepnier's interior, and were now flowing down toward a newly opened hatch. Each drone embodied a fragment of the Zadkiel's attention and self, and following them was like swimming through a school of bioluminescent fish down towards some sunken mountain in the ocean depths. I sank with them down through an open hatch. Welcome aboard, the Zadkiel's voice was a murmur in my ears. Yours is the first heart to beat here in sixteen hundred years. Down a hexagonal corridor I tumbled, lit only by the ghostly candles of passing drones, until my feet touched down at the elbow of the tunnel, and gecko grips let me walk with halting steps toward the nears central vault. I found some records, Zadkiel said. Thirteen odd generations lived and died aboard this ship, roughly 23,000 people aboard toward the end, though records grow unreliable by then. I've sent you what amounts to the final manifest. Browse it, if you like. I was already flicking through the bank of long, dead faces, which the suit projected onto membranes covering my eyes. Do you sometimes notice certain features fit in certain times? How people of a certain era share a certain look? There was something similar among all these faces, a heaviness of feature, maybe a heaviness of heart. Then, from among all those faces that belonged, one suddenly stood out. A girl of about my age at the time, who looked like someone I might have known before. A modern face, a a familiar face, just on the edge of recognition, like a word on the tip of the tongue. Something burned in those eyes, above the sharp cheeks, below the dark brows. Even in a blurry photo, long degraded, something burned. Hmm. What is it? The Zadkiel asked. Never mind, it's stupid. Say what you were going to say. You know that I believe in intuition. Uh, this girl. I, I, I think I've met her before. Interesting. Like I said, it's stupid. Out here, said the Zadkiel, how can we make such judgments? We're in the deep far enough from creation that the normal rules run thin. Space is infinite, and in infinity all things by definition must occur. Somewhere out in that infinity, there may be beings identical to us, down to the atom sharing this same conversation. Somewhere, some version of you and she have met, perhaps. And perhaps identity, in some yet undiscovered way, links all these endless variations, these counter-expositions in the endless fugue, out here, we cannot help but entertain such thoughts. And when the ship said this, I wanted it to be true. It felt right, though I couldn't bring myself to believe it. "'You're giving me too much credit,' I said. "'It's just my overactive imagination daydreaming about a pretty face.'" "'Oh, most likely,' said the ship. "'Most likely.'" A few quick blinks cleared the manifest from my vision— just in time that I caught sight of a shadow flitting past the far end of the tunnel. Ship, was that you? Hmm. I don't have any drones in that volume right now. For the first time since putting on the suit, I felt a chill. A clammy beat of sweat crept down my spine. The shadow had looked... human. And it was so silent in that suit, that ship, that endless void so silent that my breath and heartbeat were machinery in my ears. Slow, sticking footsteps brought me to the tunnel's end, to the yawning inner darkness of the sleepnier's vault. And something hurtled from the gloom. I screamed and jumped back, caroming off the tunnel ceiling as it hurtled from my throat. The suit reacted for me, thrusting out my arms as the thing struck me and the momentum sent us spinning backwards down the hallway, locked together. For a moment... All the world was grinning yellow fangs and sightless, ruptured, frosted eyes. "'Are you all right?' said the Lesser Zatkiel. "'Yeah. Yeah.' I caught my breath as a slow ricochet carried me back to the tunnel floor. The corpse's cold eyes were still boring into me. It was um, just a ghost.' I'm sorry, I thought you understood, the Zadkiel said. Among other forms of debris, there are over 20,000 bodies in the central vault. But was the ship sorry? I wasn't sure. Maybe there was um, a certain satisfaction in their voice. Children of Utopia, they'd called us. Sheltered, naive. Up until that moment, the sleep death had been theoretical to me. But now I held it in my arms. It was real, it had happened, it was still happening. The bodies had never had the chance to fully decompose. They were newly dead forever. I studied the body. It had had time to putrefy in zero-g, before the vault had ruptured, freeze drying the corpse with nightmarish effect. The body's upper half was bloated, the legs strangely shrunken. Rusty swathes of liver mortis stained the body everywhere, while green and purple blooms of rot beneath the skin were powdered blue by hoarfrost. There are no smells in a vacuum, but the scent of freeze dried rot in my imagination was so strong I almost gagged. With a little push, I let the corpse spin slowly back into the sleep near's inner night. As the darkness swallowed it up, the broken fingers still reached for me, beseeching. Perhaps a little light, as Adkill said, and a pale flare kindled in the vault, throwing long and jittery shadows where the floating bodies veered. What the light revealed was a vast brutalism, a trammeled world of hard angles, steel and concrete tightly packed and hunched together. It wasn't a home. It was a survival engine, with less concession to human dignity than a shipping crate, While the sleep-near lived, the great, twelve-sided drum of this space would have spun for artificial gravity, and so its grim pillbox habs were stacked sideways and right-side-up and upside-down, a surreal favela. I couldn't imagine life here, born in windowless darkness, to hurtle through darkness and die in darkness, never to see the sun or taste the unrecycled air. To be a squadron in the void, to sail indentured to die on some Crotoan island, to spend 600 years imprisoned. Why did they come? I asked the Lesser Zadkiel. Who would volunteer to live like this? Those who had to. I shook my head. What do you mean, had to? They had a choice, didn't they? I, c- I can't think of anything that would make me choose. this. No? Nothing? The ship's amusement held an edge. And you, whose ancestors have lived in paradise a dozen generations, what do you know of need or domination? I do not live in paradise. Try telling that to them, to every human being ground to pulp beneath the wheel of abuse that spun for thirty thousand years. I bit back a bitter reply. Who likes being told that they don't know what suffering is? but I had no good arguments to make against the ship. I could snarl and bark if I wanted, but I knew it would only be empty noise. Instead, I bit my tongue and jumped into the vault, sinking past jagged chunks of steel and gleaming shards of shattered frozen flesh. The ship went on in a softer voice. Is there justice in nature? they asked, or is it a manufactured good? And were these deaths, and a hundred centuries of human suffering, a capital investment made for its machinery? And was it necessary, after all, or only sufficient? The ship murmured on as I sank past grinning broken bodies and the bluish luminescence of its drones. I came at last to the city at the barrel's inner edge, where those that now floated had once lived. By then, the Zadkiel had fallen silent. I opened the manifest again, to find that the ship was filling in biographical detail in real time. Whether this was from records or physical evidence, I didn't know. But the Zadkiel worked fast. Names flew past my eyes almost faster than I could read them. Jeremiah Safford, Astrid Gustafsson. But at that moment, there was only one that I was truly interested in. The girl with the burning eyes now had a name, Moraine Mwangi Taylor. With the name came an address. When I clicked on it, an amber waypoint appeared before my eyes. I began to swim. Down among those grey habitats, the streets were thick with ghosts. Each corner that I passed, some drifting, slowly spinning figure would reveal itself in the blackness grinning, frozen, hollow-eyed. In the silence, and the strobing dark, each apparition came as a sudden shock, and each set of dead sockets peered into me, each set of dead lips laughing and giggling silently at what they saw. Again and again they revealed themselves to me, until my skin crawled and I wanted to scream into the dark. But before too long, the waypoint had led me to another hab, I paused a long moment, staring into the dark space beneath its lintel, afraid of... what? Some living dead thing waiting in the dark? Or simply afraid of finding Moraine Wongi Taylor dead? And why? I I knew she was. And yet, that sense of recognition, kinship that I had felt on first seeing her picture, had stuck with me. With it had come a strange hope that she might somehow turn out to be alive, like how you hope a character you know will die will live each time you reread their story. I stepped into the darkness. The apartment was empty, smaller than my cell aboard the Zadkiel. The final room I checked turned out to be hers. It was a teenage girl's bedroom. In the mind-destroying madness of that ghostly city, in the endless night, it was still a teenage girl's bedroom. Pillows floated in the corner. Frozen succulents and cacti hovered in a cloud of little stones around the garden on the windowsill. In that dim and blue stained light, I could see how she had mended her dull and much-patched jumpsuits with little patterns in blue thread. Humanity amongst the inhuman. It pierced my heart. Ship, I asked, fighting down a crack in my voice. Are there sleep pods on the Sleepnir? Talking to me again? The lesser Zankiel said. There are... some. Sleepnir was divided up by class, with descendants of the crew on top. In a crisis, some would be able to hibernate themselves in the aft compartments. They were, of course, to be drawn from the upper crust. So there was a chance then. Whatever had happened to the sleep near, there was a chance that she'd survived, dreaming away the centuries in hibernation, like some gel blooded briar rose in an alloy castle. And for some reason that I didn't understand, I wanted it to be true. Needed it to be true. I didn't ask Zadkiel if the pods were active. I had the story spelled out in my head already that. I would arrive in the aft compartments and find one pod still illuminated from within, somewhere that the Zadkill had forgotten to look, and then, as life support kicked back in, she would awake, one last survivor of the sleep near, and she would recognize me in the same way that I had recognized her. I took to the air and soared past the dead streets, ignoring the upturned faces of the drifting, livid citizens. I didn't Dared to believe that this little fantasy of mine might actually happen, but at the same time, I was drunk off of it and wished for it to come true so badly that a part of myself was almost convinced it would. A love story. It would be an unbelievable love story, and it would make all of this mean something. Zadkiel, I asked, have you discovered what happened to the sleep near yet? My imagination ran amuck, Space madness, descent into barbarism, or some alien disease. Yes, I have, said the ship. It was nothing remarkable. Just the usual. The usual? What usual? That they fled from Earth, but brought Earth's problems with them. That the same forces that destroyed their lives at home followed them out here. Ahead, the aft bulkhead was a great wall overlooking the fuselage city. It was a defensive last resort for the vital systems. If a meteor pierced both shield and city, it might still be stopped by the bulkhead and the ship would live, though twenty thousand souls the poorer. There was a navel of amber light in the middle of that great armored darkness, and I flitted toward it at speed. There, a series of Zadkiel's drones were flowing down an open hatchway. The ship went on. The sleepner was designed to give the crew control over any resources aft. In practice, this gave them the power to tyrannize the passengers. And it seems they did. Can a machine offer a despairing shrug? I could hear the impossible gesture in the Zadkiel's voice. The crew was meant to replace itself from the population on board, but crew quickly became an inherited status, and with it came the callousness of any aristocracy. Including one run by AIs, I said. I'd meant it as a flippant cheap shot, and expected some scathing jab in reply. But what the ship gave me was a troubled sigh. Sometimes, I worry. Through the bulkhead, I hurtled down frozen expanses of hydroponic agriculture, frozen vegetables thrust pallid from the hard black ice, through still factories turned over to printing of ordnance and edged weapons, past chunks of bulkhead open to the void. They had been printing guns and explosives on a ship separated from vacuum by a few inches of steel. It was insane, I thought. How could they not have known how it would turn out? But the ship murmured again as if reading my thoughts. The crew were outnumbered. They thought such weapons were necessary, just as their rivals did. And when the air purifiers slowed and the bomb smoke lingered on the air for years, that only made it more urgent to plant more bombs to bring the struggle to a close. And so both sides rode the tiger to its lair and were devoured. I pulled up sharply, for the corridor ahead was full of ghosts. Unlike those from the vault, these had frozen before they'd had the chance to rot, and so their wounds were still fresh and hard to look at. Sixteen centuries on, these bodies were still newly punctured by blunt, printed plastic knives, still cracked and spilled across the walls by hard plastic rounds fired from printed guns. I think it's time for you to turn back. The ship's tone had darkened and darkened, and now some final discovery had wearied them beyond compare. I've made a mistake in bringing you here. You don't have to take all this in. You don't have to carry the weight of all this history. I ignored them and began to shoulder through the floating ghosts, feeling the frozen eyes upon me, the claustrophobia of so many dead floating in such narrow space. But I had to go on. I could feel the fantasy withering around me. Hard, unbearable reality was closing in again. It was all real. It had all really happened. And there was no escaping from the truth. There was no pretty story that would make it all okay. I leaped at the end of the corridor, and my momentum carried me up a shaft that was all but clocked with bodies. Unlike the ones before, these had... Arched backs and hands around their necks. They had choked to death on vacuum. That's what happened in the end, I realized. The, the crew. They set charges and blew out the aft section on purpose rather than let it fall. Yes, murmured the Zadkiel. They fell back to the hibernaculum and set the rest of the ship to vent once they were under. None of them would have to watch their little genocide unfold, and then, when they awoke and orbit around a brand new world, all of it would be ancient history, and easy to forget. But something had gone wrong. The bulkhead to the hibernaculum had been cut open by torch, and black scorch marks stained the steel on every side. Someone found a pressure suit in time. Yes. Yes sighed the ship. She did. I felt an insane kick of hope in my chest. It had to be her. It had to be Moraine. Clawing at the scorched edges of the opening, half expecting them to still be blazing hot, I pulled myself through. The hibernaculum widened around me, its receding walls honeycombed with sleepers cased in glass sarcophagi. In a small, rare concession to beauty... Quartz window twinkled with the light of stars beyond, a blue glow washed through the hexagonal pillars as the Zadkiel's drones flitted from place to place. And there, under the quartz skylight, I came face to face with Moraine Wongi Taylor at last. She was asleep with her face to the void eyes shut, smiling softly amidst the black flow of drifting hair. She seemed utterly content, just floating there a few feet above the deck, with the cold starlight raining down upon her. "'Look around you,' the Zakiel said. The drones swirled on every side, and their blue glow rose to a harsh and bloody amber. From every glass case... The faces of the sleepers leered, and I realized with a sudden shock that they, too, were dead. In that red glow, black scorch marks stood out from the controls of a hundred hibernation pods. She had torched them all. The mechanisms failed, and the people sleeping in them died. There were children among them, pregnant women, too. But all the same, Moraine was smiling in the cold. Oh, I said. I floated for a moment, trying to wrap my mind around the scene. There were unused pods. She could have used what little time she'd had to set one up and save herself. Instead, she'd chosen to burn the others down. She could have lived... Instead, she'd chosen universal death. I stared at that calm, kind face for a moment, not sure what to make of her. Not Briar Rose, but a creature made of thorns. A long time had passed, I supposed, since she'd been the girl who mended clothes with little curlicues of bluish thread. I couldn't understand her, though... I tried. Our worlds were just too different, weren't they? Or maybe I just didn't want to see myself reflected in that calm and sleeping face. Didn't want to feel that kinship, recognition. Didn't want to understand why somebody would choose to kill the human race. The amber light began to dim, and Moraine's face was plunged into shadow, I turned and left the sleep near, never to return again. It was some weeks later before I was willing to talk about that day. We were halfway home by then. I found the Lesser Zadkiel's avatar in the upper hall, practicing Tai Chi before the Void. I watched for a while in silence. White crane spreads wings, strum lute, diagonal flying. How many scenes like that have you found? I asked. Hundreds. Why do you do it? Why do you track them down? Mechanical curiosity, I assumed. An inhuman, morbid need to collect and categorize information. Because they happened, Zadkiel said. And it matters that these things happened, because they happened to real people, and somebody ought to know. I wish I didn't. Do you? I'll never be able to forget it now. I'll always remember the faces, the rotted ones, the frozen ones, the sleeping ones. Would it matter if you did forget? Those faces would still be there. What was the point of it? I asked, feeling the emptiness boil up. Twenty thousand people lost, and all that suffering just a single speck, in an endless dust cloud. We've made this silly little paradise for ourselves. But what's the point in the face of all that? What's the point when it can never cancel out a moment of all that pain? And though I was begging the ship for an answer, it gave me none. For all the power of its galactic mind so far beyond the scope of meager human thought. When it finally spoke, its only answer was, I'm sorry, I don't know. I only do the best I can. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Patrons can listen to The Wrong Station ad-free, as well as get access to bonus episodes, discussions, and more. This week's episode, Recording Angels, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you, and a very special thanks at that, to Jeremiah Safford and Astrid Gustafsson for helping us keep the lights, well, off. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is you listen to The Wrong Station. The Wrong Station is co produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Elon Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at The at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.